Hi, and welcome to the second episode of Behind the Painting, a podcast which aims to explore the side of the art world we don't normally get to see. We're very lucky today to be joined by James Aldridge QC to talk about his work in the legal side of art forgery, which is what we're going to be looking at today. Let's just quickly start with a little bit more on the Steve Martin case. Steve bought the piece that he thought to be by Heinrich Kampendonk, called Landscape with Horses, in 2004 from a Parisian art gallery, and then later resold it. Because Steve didn't know that it was a fake, it's uncertain whether he's liable to compensate the buyer. The forgery gang, led by the amazingly named Wolfgang Beltraki, had snuck the painting into an exhibition filled with real paintings by Kampendonk. To further convince unsuspecting comedians into buying their art, the gang invented backstories for their fakes, claiming that they were part of two collections rescued from Nazi Germany. The provenance of a painting is extremely important to certifying its authenticity, and you'll hear more about that during the interview, which I'm going to play for you now. Okay, so we're very lucky to have with us today James Aldridge, QC, who was responsible for the case of Avora versus Christie's. Um, perhaps you'd like to just give us a brief outline of the case. Yes, of course. Um, Christie's sold uh, a painting as being by Kostodiev um, uh, twice uh, in the 80s and then again in the mid-90s, uh, selling it the second time to uh, Avrora, uh, who the claimants, who took it away with them. And uh, some months, if not years later, um, decided that they were going to claim that it was a forgery. Um, when Christie's sells a painting on behalf of a seller, it gives a warranty, which is to say a promise, uh, that the painting is genuine. And so if uh, the buyer uh, alleges that it's in fact a forgery or a fake or uh, it's either way not genuine, uh, if they can prove that, they're entitled to their money back. And that's what this case was all about. Uh, Avrora uh, took the view that the painting was a forgery and Christie's took the view that it wasn't and they defended the case on that basis, some other bases along the way but that was the main uh, issue at stake So in the end, what was the outcome of the case? Uh, Well, the judge decided uh, at the end that uh, the painting was, in his opinion, a forgery Um, So that was the decision and Christie's had to hand the money back to the buyer and they themselves took the painting back and as far as I know it is still in storage with them uh, at their offices. And so what other past forgery cases do you think the judge would have drawn on uh, when making his decision about whether or not it was a forgery? Well there are relatively few uh, reported uh, decisions. Um, Most cases tend uh, one way or another to settle Um, but probably the best guide uh, that there is to be found on how to approach these cases uh, comes in the, um, uh, the Thompson case, um, which you've probably come across in your researches. Um, in, in that case, the judge, first time round, uh, decided that his job was not to decide on a balance of probabilities whether the painting was a forgery, but to effectively uh, put a percentage on uh, the chances that it was a forgery. Uh, but the Court of Appeal said, no, that's not the way to go. What you have to do is to look at all of the evidence and decide on a balance of probabilities uh, which uh, 
it is forgery or non-forgery. Now, of course, that throws up some problems, because the outcome of that is that you may have a judge who thinks, well, it's only 51% sure that it's a forgery, but I have to decide, therefore, that it's a forgery. Uh, and so, in our case, Christie's might have felt rather upset that someone was only that certain, uh, and yet reached that conclusion. Uh, so uh, the judge would have had that very much in mind. Apart from that, there's relatively little guidance uh, on how to go about assessing uh, the evidence. So we did quite a lot of work uh, walking through that. Um, and it seemed to us, and I think the judge accepted this, that really there are three key areas that all overlap to a certain extent, but which you need to look at in deciding whether uh, a piece of art is a forgery. Uh, and those three, in no particular order, are... Uh, provenance, connoisseurship, and finally technical uh, analysis. Now, they're all relatively, relatively unlikely to be uh, determinative. I suppose there might be cases where you have some technical evidence which shows undoubtedly that a painting is uh, a forgery, for example, if pigments being used were not uh, in existence at the time uh, that the painting was supposed to be created. Um, but generally, they can only be, to a greater or lesser extent, supportive or unsupportive uh, of a verdict either way. So really, it's a question of weighing all of those things in the balance and hoping that you get the weighting right. So you mentioned that there weren't many past forgery cases to draw on. Um, in what context does art usually crop up in uh, the legal world? Well, um, I suppose I was looking at it from a judge's point of view. Um, we do see forgery cases um, appearing quite often, but as I said to you earlier, they tend to resolve themselves. People sit down and work out some sort of commercial accommodation between themselves. It's relatively rare for a case to actually go to trial, which is why uh, the Avrora one is a particularly interesting one. Um, in civil law, which is the area in which I practice, it tends to crop up in cases like this where there's been a sale by an auction house and someone asserts that they've been sold something that is uh, fake. And it's also true to say, uh, being honest with you, that the vast majority of cases in which that happens, it's fairly obvious fairly quickly whether a piece is genuine or not genuine. Um, and I have also to say the auction houses do surprisingly well at not getting it wrong. Um, generally, if they're offered something that's um, dubious looking, they won't be involved in selling it at all. But that's where it tends to crop up. Um, it can crop up in uh, other circumstances, uh, almost in reverse. I did uh, one case which, again, settled before a trial, um, involving uh, a Titian. Uh, and I don't know if you've come across this one in your research. It, it was in some of the newspapers at the time, but it was a little while back, um, where it was almost the reverse of the present case. Um, some chap took into Christie's... Um, an old country house painting covered in soot and, and so on uh, from his place in Scotland and asked them to have a look at it and they said, oh, well, it's in the style of Titian, but you know, probably a later copy, not worth spending much time doing anything with it. But we'll put it on into auction if you want as a country house piece. Um, and it sold, I think, for two or three thousand pounds. Um, imagine his horror some ten years later when he turned up at the National Gallery of Scotland and saw his piece all nice and cleaned up, hanging on the wall as a genuine Titian of Salome with the head of John the Baptist. Um, so he sued at that point for uh, alleging that Christie's had been negligent in not spotting it as genuine, but in fact assuming that it was um, 
uh, not a forgery, but uh, not a genuine piece by Titian, but something done in the style later on. Uh, so that occasionally happens. So there are all sorts of ways in which you can uh, turn up in the civil context. Um, of course, then there's the criminal context, which I have very little to do with. Uh, well, it's probably a bit more likely to see this kind of thing, actually, where either a, a dealer or a, uh, just a, a con man um, asserts that a piece is genuine and some fool with not a good enough eye thinks, well, OK, I'll, I'll buy it. Um, and then, of course, the police become involved because those are modern forgeries. Are there many modern forgeries? Because obviously it's quite hard now. Um, oh, it'd be almost impossible to forge the work of a living artist. Um, but it's probably quite hard to say, well, this is an undiscovered work of an old master because we have such a big back catalogue of their work. Is there still a lot of forgeries nowadays? Uh, modern forgeries... Um I think are out there, but not of high-value pieces. Um, anyone in the uh, upper echelons of, of the art world at the moment whose pieces are selling um, for a lot of money, uh, in the modern day and age, they've been very careful to document everything that they've created. Um, Mid-market, there is a bit, actually. Um, I, I have a personal friend who's a, a sculptor working out of Canada um, and he's made so many pieces in his life that he couldn't tell you frankly whether something was his or not so he leaves it uh, to a body of um, his uh, colleagues and contemporaries um, if someone asks is this one of his to make a decision on it because he can't now he's, he's very mid-range um, but I think I think it is still happening some of those people who maybe have done volume work uh, and have become better known um, can't always speak to, to their works in the past. So th- there's a bit of it about, but I, I certainly think that in the modern day and age it's much, much easier to, to track where pieces have been. And of course, the, the older the piece, the harder it is, because you're unlikely to have an unbroken chain of provenance. So just to move on and go to a slightly different way of approaching forgery, if I've paid for a painting because I really like it and I mm. think it's an amazing painting... What makes me entitled? This might be a bit of a simple question, and I realise I'm playing devil's advocate here a bit. But what makes me entitled to get my money back? Uh, I think because uh, most people buying paintings aren't buying it only because they like it. Take our case: uh, the, the person behind uh, Aurora wanted a custodian hanging on his wall, not because he liked this piece. And we're all agreed this is far from being. Uh, of Custodia's best, um, but because he wanted to be able to say, I've got a Custodia. And actually, that was part of what made the whole fight that much more bitter between the parties because there wasn't going to be a commercial solution for as long as he thought this isn't a Custodia. He was just not interested in the possibility that it was. So I think that's, that's why uh, Christie's offer this warranty that they offer. It's why for donkey's years now um, there's been a convention where all of the auction houses, if they put uh, an artist's name in capital letters in their um, uh, catalogues, it means that they are saying, in our opinion, this is a genuine piece. And like it or not, people people don't buy only on the basis of paintings they like. Um, 
it's because they are willing to pay a premium for the fact that it's by a well-known artist. Well, thank you very much for being with us today. Not at all. It's been a real pleasure, so thank you very much. Thanks again to James Aldridge for agreeing to come on the podcast, and I encourage listeners to view the painting Odalisque and see what you think with regards to whether or not it was forged. One of the many things of interest I got from that interview was that, like it or not, a lot of people don't buy art for art's sake. But let's say you do buy art for the purposes other than resale or to show off or any other reason other than you just like the picture. If that's the case, then why not go for the cheaper option? Why not just buy a copy? For the answers to that question, we're going to have to look elsewhere. So more on that next time on Behind the Painting. As always, if you have any tips or contributions, please email thomas.underhill at westminster.org.uk. And for those wondering, the music used in this podcast is Préface d'un journée ordinaire by Circus Marcus. Thanks for listening.